so we are, today is the last day of our Daniel series. We've been on this journey through the book of Daniel, and we're coming to the conclusion today. So um, maybe that's sad, maybe that's happy for you. I don't know what, how it's been, but uh, I, I've enjoyed the series through Daniel, and I think it'll be good. We're actually, today, we're going to be picking up in Daniel chapter 11, verse 33. If you want to flip there, the book of Daniel is after Ezekiel and before Hosea. Uh, but before we start reading, so... The, the end of the book of Daniel, like if you've read through it and if you haven't just sat and read through Daniel, I'd encourage you to do so. But what you'll find is the first half of the book of Daniel, we get, a lot of, we get these stories, it's easy to connect to. But then the, the second half of Daniel, what's it, what's it like? Anybody? It's a little different, right? The visions of beasts and the future and angel, these angelic beings and these wars. And, and uh, it can be like, Last week we looked at one of these. We looked at spiritual powers. And then today we're going to be talking about the end times. So we're just swinging for the fences here at the end. We're just take it, taking it all on. All right? Um, so, but end times, when, when, when we talk about end times, I don't know what your experience has been, but um, sometimes I've come across things that just feel goofy. And kind of there's this, even in the history of Christianity, there's, there's kind of this... You know, we can get this obsessed with the the end and end times. In one early on in 156 A.D., so this is 156 after Jesus. There's a guy by the name of Montanus, and um, he got these two women, Priscilla and Maximilla, with him, and together they started saying, "In 156, the end of the world is coming. The city from heaven is going to come down." And they, they said it's going to come to this place, which today is modern day Turkey. And they went up to the mountains of modern day Turkey and gathered a crowd. Everybody, the end of the world is coming, and it didn't happen. And then. Um, a couple centuries later, another guy, Hilary of Poitiers, uh, difficult name, but a uh, real person. Hilary of Poitiers, he said in 365 AD, the end of the world is coming. And then it didn't come. And he said, actually, it was 366. And then it didn't come. And then he gave up on the, the trying. Year 500, nice round number. 500, multiple theologians said 500 is the year the world is going to end. One of them actually got to that calculation through the dimensions of Noah's Ark. I don't know how you bridge that gap. But, you know, the world's going to end. Didn't end. A um, couple in nine, what were some of these other? 968, there's a solar eclipse. The world's going to end. 989, Halley's Comet comes to the sky. Oh, that must be the world's. Of course, then it was just Comet. Halley wasn't there yet. And, uh, but world didn't, in the year 1000, Y1K, uh, people like uh, 1000 years after Jesus were sure this is it. And so in Rome, Pope Sylvester, that was his name, Sylvester, was giving the midnight mass at New Year's Eve, and there's a crowd gathered in Rome, sure this is the end. When it didn't come, they said, oh, well, we, we added from Jesus' birth, not his death. It's actually going to be in 1033. That's the real end. And, of course, it didn't end. But this is, there's this, and then if you, if you actually go through, like, in the next thousand years, it just speeds up because more and more of these are written down. And don't even get started on the 20th century. I mean, it's, seriously, you go to, Wikipedia has a page, list of dates predicted for end times, or list of dates predicted for apocalyptic events or something. 174 separate people with their predictions. And then, of course, some of them have multiple predictions. It's like if you, if you miss the first time, try, try again, just keep, we'll get it. But this is, right? And, but it's like, Jesus he said in, in uh, the beginning of the book of Acts, he, says, he said, hey, nobody knows when the end will come. 
so chill. That's my paraphrase. But this is, right, there's some, there's some interesting stuff around this. And, uh, but yet, there are, these, there, are par- there are parts of Scripture that talk about things yet to come. And so somehow today, and th- what we're going to look at in Daniel is one of these places. And so somehow I, wa- I want to look at it, and I want to look at it on, on its own terms. And why, why did God give this? What was it meant to do in people's lives? And, w- and is there a different way of interacting? Other than that kind of, that, the way that it can go sideways, are there ways that are interacting with this that it's meant to really bring life to us? I want to try and get there uh, with y'all today. And so... Let me set the context a little bit, kind of where we're at in the book of Daniel. We're in this, uh, the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel has 12 chapters. And chapters 10, 11, and 12, these last three chapters, it's one, it's one big vision. It all flows together. We talked about uh, part of it last week. And it's a genre of biblical literature called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic does just, it, it, it means more than just like the end of the world. Apocalyptic is a, is a biblical genre. An apocalypse means to unveil or to reveal, to show, and it really shows two things. One, which we talked about last week, it reveals or it shows kind of uh, the, the heavenly realms or the other side of reality or the spiritual reality. It shows, kind of pulls the curtain back, shows that. Talked about that last week. Two, it reveals or it shows what is yet to come, something about the future. And that is what chapters 11 or 12 are about, what we're going to talk about today. This unveiling, this revealing of the future. But here, this bit is a little complicated, so stick with me here. So today we're going to talk about this this unveiling, revealing of the future. But a lot of what takes place in Daniel chapter 11, a lot of what takes place here is, so so it's, it's future for Daniel, but past for us. So Daniel, he's in the 500s B.C. That's when he's writing, um, sees this vision, writes it down. And um, a lot of what takes place in Daniel chapter 11 are things that, take, that, that are future for him. They actually happen in the 300s B.C., the 200s B.C., the 160s, 170s B.C. So they're future for Daniel, but they're past for us. That's not the whole thing. It goes beyond that, but a lot of it is there. And uh, so just, just to kind of orient, uh, just to give an example... The beginning of chapter 11, and we don't have the words on the screen here, but I'll just kind of tell you about it a little bit real quick. So the beginning of chapter 11, it says, Three more kings will arise in Persia, then a fourth. So it's talking about Persia, Persian kingdom. We know about Persian kingdom. Um, And they will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. When the kingdom of Greece, when Greece defeats Persia, that's Alexander the Great. We know about that. Then Alexander dies, and then it, um, it says after he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out. So we know about when Greece arose under Alexander the Great, conquered Persia, when he died, and then his kingdom was parceled out. So it's talking about things that were future for Daniel but past for us. That's the point I'm making, right? And it actually it heads on, and chapter 11 comes, comes to a climax focusing on these events. Chapter 11 ends up kind of focusing in on these events that took place in Judea, around the years 170 and 160s B.C. Now, stay with me because the context is important here. In, the, in 167 B.C., Judea and the people uh, are living around Jerusalem. They uh, imagine you're, 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 you're just, you know, you're, uh, you're living in Jerusalem. You're trying to make your, your way. You're trying to follow God. You've got your farmland. 
And what happened is there was this empire called the Seleucid Empire that controlled a lot of the ancient Near East. And the head of the Seleucid Empire was a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Can you say Antiochus? Epiphanes. Here's a, a bust of Antiochus. He, he had a nose in real life. I think it's just been broken off there. Um, Antiochus, and you could say Epiphanes or Epiphanes. Antiochus was his given name. Um, he gave himself the name uh, Epiphanes because it meant uh, God made visible. So he named himself, I am Antiochus, God made visible, right? He's a man with self-esteem there, right? So, and it, this is great though. People, so he called himself, and you can pronounce it Epiphanes too. So he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. And people behind his back, we call him Antiochus Epimanes, which means the insane one. Wait, this is how they're... So if you wonder what people thought of this man. So he controlled the Seleucid Empire, and, uh, which ruled over Judea. And there is this moment in history, 167 BC, when Antiochus decides he is going to, squ- he is going to stomp out biblical faith in the land of Judea. He takes his soldiers, and we know this. He takes his soldiers, he goes to Judea, goes to the land of Israel, goes there, and he is determined to stomp it out. And so he reconquers Jerusalem. He, um, he tells people, if you do anything to observe the laws of God, observe Torah, if you observe Sabbath, you worship on the festivals, you circumcise your male children, it will cost you your life. He goes to, he goes to Jerusalem, to the temple. Conquers the temple in the place. This is like the center place of worship for the people of God in Judea. He conquers the temple, and in the temple he sets up an idol to Zeus. He sacrifices pigs to it, which were considered this unclean animal. And then he allows temple prostitution in the temple area. I mean, he's doing everything he can to squash out biblical faith. He says, if you, if, you, if you follow the laws of God, my soldiers will come and find you. I mean, it is unimaginable. I mean, can you even imagine you're, you're, you're living in the hill country uh, by near Jerusalem and you've got your vineyard and you, and you, you, got, you know, your family's living and you're just trying to make your way. You're trying to raise your family or you're, you're just trying to and, and you're, you just want to worship your God. And then this maniac comes in, the insane one who's determined to wipe out your faith. And you have to make a decision. Am I going to be faithful to my God or am I going to follow the insane one? This is the background. Daniel, see, Daniel has this vision of this coming. He's writing to these people. And so um, with that background in mind, let's hear some of that. I want to pick up in verse 33 of chapter 11. So we read, Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. And uh, just to be clear, when it says those who are wise, wise doesn't just mean smart. In the book of Daniel, we've seen that wisdom for the book of Daniel means people who trust in God. People who trust the God of Israel. That's, that's the path of wisdom. So the people who trust in God will instruct many. Though for a time they will fall by the sword to be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help. Many, of those, many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the end of time. For it will still come at the appointed time. So here we, the, we see this kind of what, what I was just talking about being described. That there's this time of persecution. The, the wise, those who are faithful to God, are even giving up their lives. 
And then there's, there's other people joining him under false pretenses. Some people are stumbling, but it's this time of distress, right? This great persecution. And I, and I, and I want to pull out two really important points here. Two really key points. First of all, just this simple observation that Daniel, in the book of Daniel, is very aware that very bad things can happen to people who trust God. We've been going through this book and we've we've read these stories. And and as you go through Daniel, there's these moments of miraculous deliverance. Daniel in the lion's den, he's saved from the lions. The, the, um, the three men who are able to walk through the furnace. God delivers them from the furnace. And, those, and God does, there are moments in history when God delivers people, rescues people. But there, the, danger is the, the danger is to think that's the, that always happens. And the book of Daniel clearly knows that's not the case. The part of reality is that sometimes really bad things can happen to people who trust God. So the first point, Daniel says these things, sword, captured, plundered, burned, can happen to people who trust God. The second point I want to make is this, that for, that for Daniel, that for Daniel um, and those coming after him, this created attention. This created attention, and this is the reason why. Up to this point in the Hebrew Scriptures, only hints about the afterlife have been given. When you read through the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the vast majority of it is about life here and now. You don't get all these explanations about the life to come in the Hebrew Scriptures. You only get hints about the afterlife. And so they were faced with this question. They, they, they had this kind of vague notion that maybe there's something more, but it seems like really life here and now is, is the focus of it. And so there, there's this question arose. Because they're, they're what? They're, okay, God, God, we know you're good, but God, this is what we see happening with our eyes. This wicked man, Antiochus, he is prospering. And the very people who are most faithful to you are suffering the greatest. God, if this life is all there is, how could you be good? How does this work? This doesn't make sense, God. God, if you're good, how can, it, how can this be the end of the story? The Antiochus prospers and the people who are most faithful to you suffer the greatest. And so it created this tension, this question. God, how, is this how the story ends? God, how, how, show us how you are good and faithful in this. And so it's this, this question about God's goodness. And I don't think, I don't think it's a foreign question for a lot of us. Now, thankfully, most of us aren't faced with the kind of, uh, the kind of hostility that, that they experienced in Antiochus' day. And yet I do think many of us today ask the question, God, how is it? How is it, God, that people who, who trust you, such things can happen to you? And God, how, God, are you good? I see what's going on in my life. Will you show me how you're good? Have you asked questions like that? So they've got this tension. We believe you're good. 
We've had hints about the afterlife. How is it that Antiochus is prospering? The people who are faithful, you are suffering. And it's in this situation, this context, that then the vision that Daniel passes on begins describing the far, far future. The end of the end. And so we're going to look at that now, but it's important to understand that, that Daniel passing this on, in somehow, in Daniel's mind, the end of the end had something specifically to say to the situation they were in and the questions they were asking. So let's, let's look at that. So jumping down now to the end of the end, um, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as, not, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So Daniel here, he's, passing the, he's sharing this vision of the end of the end, and, and he says at the end of the end there's going to be this great distress. Then people who sleep in the dust will awake. That's resurrect. Sleep in the dust means they're dead. They will awake. They'll be resurrected. And then there'll be this sorting, this separating, this judgment. Everlasting life, everlasting shame. And this, this, this picture, we get it picked up in the New Testament. This idea that, um, that people, when, when we die, there'll be this in-between time. We'll die, there's this in-between. At the end, there's this resurrection. And then this judgment, this separating, this sorting. But the New Testament, while well, the New Testament develops that clearly, this, here in Daniel 12, this is one of the first places it is clearly articulated in the Hebrew Scriptures. That for most of the Hebrew, there's hints of the life to come, hints of the afterlife, but it's here in Daniel 12 for the first time it is clearly said, distress, resurrection, judgment. It's clearly given. Which I think raises this question. Why here and why now? What was it about what what was it about what Dan, those people in the 160s and 170s, what they were going to go through under Antiochus Epiphanes, what was it about that situation that God said, I am going to give the vision of what is to come clearly here and now? I think it's something like this. That, that in that time, that in that time, those men and women, those families, they were in, in one of the most difficult ways yet. They were faced with this choice. Will I trust God or will I follow the insane one? Will I trust God even if it costs me suffering I cannot imagine? Will I trust God even if it costs me my life? Or Will I walk after the insane one? 
We've talked before about the, the genre, this genre of apocalyptic, revealing of spirituality, spirit revealing of the future. The genre of apocalyptic, it, com- it comes in times when people are under in great persecution and stress. And the, the apocalypse as a genre, it's meant for the encouragement of God's people. To encourage people to live faithfully then and there. And I think God gifts his people, this vision, clear vision of what is to come here and now, because in a new way, more than ever, they needed strength. They needed encouragement. They needed, they needed to know beyond a shadow of doubt God's good, and he will be faithful to them. They were asking God, how can you be good if this is how it is? And God said, I will be good. I will be faithful to you, even if it goes beyond the grave. I promise I will be faithful. God, how can Antiochus is he's he's prospering, he's winning. How can you be just? God says, I will be just. Justice will come to Antiochus, even if it's on the other side of the grave. In some of the most difficult circumstances, they were asking questions about God's goodness and how could they find the strength to be faithful? And it's in this moment God says, I am good. I'm good beyond the grave. And you can trust me to live faithfully even where you find yourselves now. And God gives them this vision of resurrection. Now, now maybe, maybe you're here and maybe you're, you're here and you're, you're curious about faith. Maybe you're asking questions about Christianity but maybe you, ha- you, you part of you is like, well, is that, is that wishful thinking? I mean, it sounds good and everything, but they're in this difficult circumstance. Their life's being threatened. Maybe it's just wishful thinking. Maybe they're making this up to kind of feel better. I, I would say this. One, I, it's a strange kind of wishful thinking that by... by I mean, their, their believing in the resurrection, it actually led them to, to live faithfully, which meant greater suffering. It's a strange kind of wishful thinking that leaves you into greater harm. And two, I would say that the, the whole wishful thinking argument, it really cuts both ways in my mind. Sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, when Christians, they believe in God, they believe in life after death, like it's wishful thinking. And, and, and uh, but... But there's also another kind of wishful thinking. And, and I want to read a quote to you because I think it kind of draws this out. There's a, uh, there's a, a, a professor at NYU. His name's Thomas Nagel. He's an he, uh, atheist. And um, he, he talks about this. And he says this about his non-belief in God. He says, It's not just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. He goes on, he talks about, he describes himself as someone with a cosmic authority problem. And he says, this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. There's, I think there's also another kind of wishful thinking um, that says, uh, I, I hope there's not a God that, that would tell me how to live. I hope there's not a God that would ask hard things of me. And I, and I think Nagel here is he's being very perceptive and, and very honest about the fact that we have all these kinds of motivations that lead us to believe the things we believe. So is it wishful thinking? It's a strange kind of wishful thinking that leads a person uh, 
into greater suffering because they believe in the resurrection. And isn't, isn't it also possible that there's a kind of wishful thinking that says, I wish there's no God to tell me what to do. I wish there's no God that would ask hard things of me. I wish there's no accountability. See, the resurrection, God gives this vision of the resurrection. It's not, He gives it to His people, not just for kind of their intellectual speculation, but He gives, in this moment, He gave the vision of the resurrection to His people to empower them to live faithfully in the then and there. It was meant to change how they lived that day, that year, their lives. It wasn't just for speculation. I think the, the picture that came to my mind was, imagine, uh, imagine a group of people, and uh, these people, they're, they're stuck on a desert island in the Pacific, right? Well, my family, we were last night, we were watching Swiss Family Robinson, so maybe they're Swiss. And uh, they're stuck on this desert island. And imagine on this desert island, there's, there's, uh, there's no fresh water. There's just like a swamp with this gunky water, but, you know, it's all briny. Somehow they need to get water, and they're, they're, their lives are at danger. And the rescuers find the people trapped on the desert island, but they can't land. They can't get there yet, but they know they need water. So they say, I know what we'll do. We will, we will we'll drop water filter down to the people. That way they can pump, clean the water. It'll give them life. They'll, they'll survive. And now imagine they drop the water filter down. These people on the desert island, they, people get the water filter. This, this is it. And then they decide, they, they decide, let's, they find this and they're not sure what to do with it. So they start taking it apart and they start wearing it as jewelry. And um, they, put, they put bits on. And I don't know, they, they put clips on their ears and, they, and then they start arguing about whose jewelry is nicer and my, my filter jewelry is better than your filter jewelry and I'm going to steal your filter jewelry and this kind of thing. But is that the, the point isn't the jewelry. The point isn't to argue. The point is to get water out of the ground for life, to live. And I think, I think when we talk about the end of the end, when we talk about the resurrection... I, I think it's a bit like that in some ways. I don't think I'll leave that on there. Um, that I don't, Daniel doesn't pass his vision on. He's not thinking, oh, someday there will be internet conspiracy chat boards and this will be great because they'll, they'll argue about it and create charts. And it'll be fantastic. They'll figure it all out. That's not, Daniel gives it. Daniel says, there are going to be, someday there will be men and women and families that need courage. Someday there'll be things happening. There'll be a darkness that people are facing. And they will need a strength. They will need a confidence in God's goodness. That his goodness stretches beyond the grave. And I want to assure them. I want to give them this clear vision of what is to come. To give them the strength. To give them the encouragement. That they could be faithful when Zeus stands in the temple, when the soldiers come knocking, that these people will be able to stay faithful to God no matter what. God gives the vision of the resurrection. He gives it to encourage his people to stay faithful in the most difficult times. We... uh, We've gone through this series, this series in Daniel. And 
And we've seen throughout the kind of the, the journey through the book of Daniel that, and we've talked about exile, these situations when God's people find themselves in places where, where kind of the, the, the cultural institution, the powers that be are maybe ambivalent or hostile to, to biblical faith. And, and at times we've seen even in the book of Daniel that, that there's all different experiences. The early on in the book of Daniel... The, uh, the people of God, they're able to make, them get, kind of make their way quite well without much um, opposition. And yet we've seen these other circumstances here towards the end of the book that it can be quite hostile. There's kind of a range of experiences. And, and we've talked about how the, there, there's some parallels. that we, As we live, um, as we try to walk after Jesus today, that, it, that in the Western world that we're increasingly a post-Christian society. That the, the cultural institutions, there's kind of an ambivalence to biblical faith, and at times even hostility, but yet nowhere near what we've talked about here in Daniel chapter 11. And yet, the reality still exists in the place and time we find ourselves in. We too have to make choices. We have to make choices about, will we walk faithfully with our God? Even, even if it's difficult, even if it leads to even if it leads to life being harder, sometimes walking after Jesus makes life harder. Or will we go with the cultural flow? And, and, and one of, one of the, the resources that we're given is this vision of the resurrection. And, and the point of God giving the vision of the resurrection, I think this is where kind of for me the rubber hits the road, the point, the point of it, fundamentally the resurrection, it's not fundamentally about us. It's not fundamentally about what happens after death. Those things are true and they're part of it. But the heart of the resurrection is this. The heartbeat of it is this. The center of it is this. That God is faithful and good. That is the center of it. That he will be just even on the other side of the grave. And he will be faithfully good to his people even on the other side of the grave. The heartbeat of it is about God's goodness even when in our lives it feels confusing. And it's by the assurance of God's faithful goodness that gives us the strength to walk faithfully whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And this, this, this heartbeat, this, the, the character of God, that is, this is the thing that holds this whole book together the end of the day, this book is not held together by a system or by a philosophy. It is held together by the, 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 the stable and consistent character of God. That he is faithfully good, relentlessly good, and will be good even on the other side of the grave. When we come to the story of Jesus, that is, that is what we get to see in HD. In Jesus, God himself steps into exile with his people, for his people. In Jesus, God himself faces this situation of having to be faithful even when it costs him his life. In Jesus, God himself takes on all our stumblings, all our shortcomings, all our unfaithfulness. It's when we look to him, he's good, he's good, he's good. And he asks that we trust him. That is our response. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Abba, Father, and uh, Jesus, Messiah, Spirit of life. Pray for the men and women and 
um, the lives represented in this room, and uh, you, uh, you know the questions that we bring. You know the questions we bring about who you are and your heart towards us. You know the challenges we face about what does it mean to be faithful and where will we find the strength. You know the questions we bring about are you out there and do you see me? And uh, Lord God, we come in faith that you are the God who not only spoke to your people in the past, but you are the God who still speaks a living word. And so where a word of truth, a word of hope, a word of courage needs to be spoken this morning, would you speak to the men and women in this room? The living word that people need to hear. And we trust you'll do it by your spirit. In your name. Amen.